Today we are, oh, sorry, this is a podcast where we interrogate um, films previously described by other obtainers of rare antiquities as masterpieces. I am Nick and I am joined as ever by Roger. Oh. And today we are donning our Federers, uh, oiling up our whips and stumbling across artifacts uh, which should have been left alone, um, as we delve deeply into another Spielbergian story, the, I think it's fair to say, masterpiece, um, or even at the outset, um, the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark. And or, as definitely it's now been not re- known under any other title ever. <laughs> okay, good. I was going to point out it's now been rebranded, but I'm glad to say that. I So this is, um, these are, we're starting to hit films which I... Remember from my childhood, um, I didn't watch Raging Bull when I was a child. Das Boats, my parents watched on TV when mm. I was very much younger. Raiders of the Lost Ark, I remember watching on a cross-channel ferry from Calais to Dover on the way back from a long holiday. <laughs> um, I must have been... I don't know when it went on the ferries. If it was 81 in the cinemas, it was probably... This was back in the time where everything wasn't all released simultaneously. It was probably another year or two, I would have yeah. thought, before it was on the ferries. So I was probably seven or eight when I saw this film. What's your well, experience? They, they, they say the golden age of Lovecraft is 12, so, you know... <laughs> well, the gold, I Well... The Golden Age of Spielberg, probably a little bit younger, I would say. But, yeah, I oh, I don't think I saw this immediately when it came out, but I was aware, you know, it was one of those things that, like Star, Star Wars, everybody was talking about it, everybody had you know, books and magazine articles and things about it. So I, I was, it was aware it was of the general outline it. and the way it looked and so on, and then I didn't actually see it until maybe a year or two later. Okay. Oh, I should do a quick plot summary. Um Archaeologist fails to have any impact at all on a Nazi digging. <laughs> Nazi digging event. Um, I think we know the summary briefly, but um, uh, fabled, well, not fabled at the time, but iconic. Oh, I want to talk about iconic characters in this podcast, but we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, Indiana Jones, uh, a archaeologist at, I don't know if it's mentioned here, but I believe it's Marshall College. Um, that's why I'm wearing my Marshall College T-shirt. Um, <laughs> not that I'm a fan of Indiana Jones or anything. Um uh, goes on a hunt for the fabled lost ark um, and finds it. Good job, well done, Indy. Um, <laughs> we'll take it from what, here. We'll take it. From here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. Um, well, yeah. So this is a film. We often watch films that we haven't seen before. Raiders. We have. I liked it a lot when I first saw it. It's fair to say when I hmm. was. Um, less than a quarter of my current age. How, what was your feeling on first viewing, Roger? Um, yeah, I think pretty much took it as it, as it, um, as it was presented. It, it's an entertainment. Um, what, yes. one of the comments in, in the, um, story conference, uh, which is, has been trans- transcribed and I, I was skimming through was Spielberg saying, we are designing a ride at Disneyland. Yes. And, um, this this is good and bad. I mean, in in terms of 
you know, somebody who was, yeah, in my case, probably 13, 14, in your case, probably seven. Yes. Is going to watch it and have a great time. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that, uh, I mean, at that age, yeah. entertainment is, I don't know, you haven't seen it all before. This hadn't been done before in quite this way, um, with this budget at least. And I feel at that sort of age, when it's your first encounter of this sort of thing, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to be a bit blown away by this, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I didn't develop my heart of stone until later. <laughs> That's a, well, now, now we do a film podcast and we're all cynical. And all. That's interestingly, though, some of the films we have enjoyed most of all in this podcast have been the entertainment vehicles. Jaws, our previous Spielberg. Our sec- this is our third Spielberg. Mm. I only just thought of that. Um, I, th- uh, I think the thing King. I would say is that it's it's at the cost of the more serious stuff. I mean, yes. t- there's always a tension, but th- this is the one where to my mind it's explicitly we care much more about the action the roller coaster ride the spectacle than we do about the story I and agree. as what as we will come to say later there there are some holes in the story which may not you may not spot while you're watching it being carried along in the moment yes but there's um, a, a spreader escalier or a spreader de fridge or something where you yeah you, fr- fr- fridge, fridge logic fridge um, logic i don't remember somebody reasonably well known who came up with the idea, but the idea is that you, you you're watching the thing and you think this is great, and then you get up to the go to the fridge to get a beer and think, yeah, but hang on a minute, hang, just a moment. Um, well, so we both watched it before. We both enjoyed it. I mean, I've watched it, I don't know, many times now, um, and I, I, partially because of that, the magic has faded just from familiarity. But watching it with a more critical eye. Eh, Raiders does not stand up as well to me as Jaws does. Jaws I have watched mm. probably more times than Raiders. Jaws I love um, not uh, unequivocally, but uh, I feel that's a very good point you made that it's um, uh, that you, Jaws doesn't completely ignore all the stuff. There are not quite the same gaping plot holes. There is not quite the same. The characters are less iconic which we'll talk about but more interesting probably mm. um and there is at least some attempt at social commentary in jaws even if it's touched upon there is something and we've said before where it where it works best for us is if it's just slightly not pushed in your face but but sort of tacked on at least acknowledged during another entertainment vehicle um raiders does not does it attempt any kind of social commentary at all other than Nazis are bad. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> this this was perhaps less controversial uh, at the time than it, than it might be considered now. Um. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's that's that is a depressing thought. Um, but I mean, for instance, imperialism. You know, Raiders is a film. You know, one of Indy's catchphrases becomes later on. It belongs in a museum. He does vaguely. I think he mentions it here, but it, it's it, it's quite clear he is doing. All of his adventures for financial gain. Yeah, and um, he's, he's a treasure hunter. He's um, a treasure hunter. And that's acknowledged by, you know, Belloc quite clearly states, you know, we've fallen from the true path and basically we've stopped being archaeologists and become treasure hunters. Um, I mean, con- consider that opening sequence, which yeah, I, I will not for a moment claim is not a great opening action sequence. We should talk about that, yes. But from with an archaeologist's eye... Yeah, we we should have asked Paul Helen on first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't do a lot of measuring or checking. Does he does he? an awful lot of damage. 
in, in extracting the one shiny gold thing. There were archaeologists in Egypt that worked in a very similar fashion, <laughs> but they may they are not now considered the greatest. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there, there was a lot of that. I think I think it was starting to transition at this point, but yeah. But it does. I suppose it feels like it's not. It's. I suppose talking it through actually, Belloc does mention it. It is vaguely touched upon, but it never really has acknowledged the idea of this cultural imperialism. And maybe this is looking back on it more from a 2021 viewpoint than a 1981 viewpoint, which was, of course, I must remember, depressingly 40 years ago. <laughs> um, but it doesn't. It doesn't really have anything to say about that. It is just a vehicle for the uh, for the. Go to exotic places. Exactly, yeah. which even, you know, The Man Who Would Be King, which is an adventure story, um, it does, I feel it has something to say about imperialism, not much, but it has something to say about imperialism, or at least acknowledge that perhaps those involved were not heroes, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Indy is very much set up as a heroic character. Yeah. Again, looking, looking at the story conference stuff... Um, so th- th- this is it, it was George Lucas who had the original idea, I think. It's not entirely clear because there was obviously a lot of cross fertilization. But Lucas basically said, "I want to do a classic serial style film." Well, I think this and, was from the. I mean, it's hard to unpick now. It's become so iconic. This came off the back of Spielberg saying, "I want to do a Bond movie," and Lucas mm-hmm. saying, "Tell you what, let, I've got better than that. Let's do." A classic serial style, but we give it the budget. Yeah, I mean, Lucas, obviously, the serial influences there in, in the Star Wars films as well. So yes, it's clearly a thing that was in his mind. Um, there, there are some mentions that Lucas wanted him to be a kung fu practitioner and a playboy, funding his lifestyle with with his the spoils of his adventures. Well, there are characters. There's a um, brief moment of that in the film when the moment when Marcus goes to Indy's flat mm-hmm. and he's dressed somewhat incongruously in this very. Um, fancy dressing gown. The idea was he has a floozy, and I think they actually filmed it. A floozy. He uh, it, a, it's certainly in the, in the surviving script. It's in the that he has a woman in the flat, and he's dressed for his romancing. Um, but it, and I always thought that's a very, uh, very handsome-looking dressing gown <laughs> he's wearing in that scene. Uh, so, and Spiel, Spielberg said, out, "Yeah." Spielberg said he should be an avid gambler or an alcoholic or some flaw like that, and then Lucas said, "No, no, I wanted to be you know, the straight arrow role model." And... Which is where they went in the end. I mean, other than his murdering and robbing. <laughs> he's, he's a clear role model. Um, but it, it seems to be basically uh, Lucas and Spielberg had had the ideas for the original setup and the set pieces. And then yes. they got Lawrence Castan in, uh, see Empire Strikes Back. Fresh off Empire Strikes Back, I believe. Uh, to, to do all the actual hard work of the writing of the connective tissue to link stuff together. And that is a very good way. I mean, the plot really is... That's what it is, isn't it? It is basically just the gristle to get to the... But it's interesting because Loris Castan is such a good writer that some of the most interesting bit in Raiders is the gristle. Mm. I, I mean, the opening scene, as you say, is just... I've never seen anything like that. When I, when I saw that as a kid, that was just astonishing. It's brilliant. But the scene right afterwards where Indy basically takes the um, takes the two army guys to school mm-hmm. about the Raiders, about the Lost Ark... It is a, it's one of the most, to me, that's one of the best exposition scenes I've mm. ever seen. It tells you a lot you need to know about Indy. It really humanises this character that had been slightly mysterious before. And that is just the juxtaposition of this guy you've just seen, this 
Bond hero character superhuman, then giving a very boring lecture <laughs> in martial arts. <laughs> that was an amazing, that's, that was a work of genius. And then to this, everything from that scene, down from the the way he he kind of reverses the situation. He's clearly an intelligent academic as well as everything else. I mean, mm. I know it's not. We're not never right. going to see that again, but he knows no, stuff. No, we aren't. That's, that's a shame, really. But um, right down to the book that he opened. I've never seen a book like that. You know, the Bible that he <laughs> opens with the class. Like, everything about that scene is perfect. The picture of the, the ark and the the fire, lightning power of god or something and if, yeah i mean it. you you'd need the illustration for the visual effect but you know a bible with illustrations that's probably 19th century at the very earliest exactly <laughs> yeah so it's, i the book is perfect the the little scene explaining the headpiece of the staff of ra i mean let's not get into the fact that i mean that's supposed to be 72 inches minus a kadam whatever a kadam is that's like that staff's supposed to be about five feet tall and it's much taller than indy so <laughs> either, <laughs> either it's much anyway we'll get on to plot holes um but just that scene where he explains the the MacGuffin, as hitchcock would say and then just carefully lays out the next piece of the plot mm-hmm. I mean, you don't really that pretty much tells you what's going to happen from there for the I, next half of the film. I think it's fair to say that all, all three of them were very aware that if you confuse the audience, and it's a film, so it has to have a mass audience, which is going yes. to include some quite stupid people. Yes. But the more you confuse them, the more you lose them. Yes, so, yeah. And there's some films do that deliberately and use it to their credit. Raiders is not one that is trying to do it. And I, well, well, I'd like to move... So I, that, that to me is a very... Very good opening scene, mm. um, and one of yeah one of the greats. Uh, again, we t- this is a podcast about masterpieces. Uh, podcast podcast about masterpieces. Um, but also, you, not... you take take the the scene and the lecture together, and that tells you. I mean, you, you could then write an indie adventure with that as your reference material. You know, yeah. he, he goes out, he does action stuff. Uh, he's he's got this rival. He has an eye for the ladies. <laughs> yeah, except, yeah. There's not much that happens after that that is a surprise, really. I mean, even the ending is pretty heavily foreshadowed throughout the film. With anyone with, with any sense telling him he's going to get his brain melted if he tries <laughs> to do this. Um, but that is a that is a masterpiece of exposition because it 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 sets up the plot. It also sets up Indy uh, again as the, what kind of character they want him to be. Yeah. Um, just by the time he gets on the plane. Um, you know what he's about, you know what the film's about, you know where you are, really. Very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to talk about Indy a bit. He is, he is yeah. a very obvious... I mean, I it's hard for me to distance my kind of gut reaction to Indy because I was just... I just you know, that went straight into my brain as hero. Mm-hmm. And so it is hard for me to try and distance, un- unpick that a little bit. But he was a very clearly designed iconic character and I, I wanted to know I wanted to be sure what I was talking about with iconic characters so I was um I one definition I found online is a character that is larger than any one story um which I think is fair to say about Indy and also an icon is something that's a symbol of something and, and Indy really is a symbol of it, adventure I mean he just yeah. He's an iconic character. Well, I, I haven't been able to verify the original reference, but as far as I can see, 
the term seems to have been invented by Alan B. Urey, uh, right. screenwriter. And okay. he, he was specifically distinguishing dramatic from iconic characters. So a dramatic character is somebody who has a story, an arc, basically. You know, Where they, an iconic character is the same and remains stable throughout the whole yeah, plot. Yeah, and a canonical example for me is, is somebody like Doc Savage. Right. Who, yes. you know, he starts, of the hundred plus novels, everyone starts in basically the same situation. Uh, yes, and that is exactly true of the Indiana Jones films, that they are well, the only acknowledge the passage of time because they have to now because he's pushing 80. Oh, anyway, you, you can do great the... things with computers. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess we'll find out. This, I should point out this is the first film we've discussed which actively has a sequel in development right now. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. Anyway. <laughs> uh, also had a sequel in development almost immediately. I mean, practically before filming had wrapped, they knew they wanted to do another one. Well, interestingly, that was, a, I suppose, well-known now, but that was a, a prequel. But it doesn't wow. make a, another one of the plot well, that's the thing. It, again, it, and, and, unless, unless you'll notice that he was go, going off with, with a rather nice lady at the end of number one and he's not with her at the beginning of number two, then, you know... <laughs> yeah, the fact that it doesn't have... The, it, Aside from, aside from noticing the date at the beginning of the film, it doesn't know. You wouldn't actually know whether it was a sequel or not, because Indy himself has not changed whatsoever, despite going through something of, you would think would cause you to have some religious thoughts at the end of Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> bereft of them by raiders and certainly um, Last Crusade. But the, the thing is, um, if you take, take an iconic character and then try to make them dramatic, which is a thing I think we've seen... Um, quite a lot of recent stuff. You get things yeah. like um, Solo, where yeah. you say, you know, in Star Wars, Han Solo is the guy fully formed, and he yes. ha- he has this minor dramatic thing in the romance arc, but he he is basically he he is at the start the hot pilot, gambler, gunfighter, etc., and he remains that way. Yes. And so what what Solo has to do, and my own feeling is that it is fundamentally an error to try to do this, though it can be done well. Uh, is say, okay, so here is how he got the iconic ship. Here is how he got that iconic this or that yeah. or the other. And it's, I always think that the story one makes up is in a sort of vague form is more satisfying than the actual story put down on the, on the screen. I'm trying to think if I can. And if, if, you sa- if you'd said, how did Indy get his whip in a prequel? Would it yeah. ever be as satisfying as, here's this guy, he's got a whip, he knows how to use it. Well, they do actually explain that in Last Crusade. But uh, really never mind. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry to <laughs> It's a long time we, since I saw that. We must talk about Last Crusade. Um, I suppose that is, I mean, that is the vogue because that's very much Daniel Craig's James Bond as well. They basically turned this iconic character into, I don't know how much you've watched Daniel Craig's James Almost Bond. Almost nothing. Casino Royale is his prequel story. That's mm. him turning into the iconic James Bond. I think that is quite well done, actually. I don't like any of the other Daniel Craig. And, <laughs> and Sp- actually, the one that everyone loves, Spyfall, I don't want to turn, I'm not a huge Bond fan, that that really ties up itself in knots, trying to, one, show that he is an iconic character and a dramatic character at the same time. Mm. I think you've read that, thinking about it, that's probably why Spyfall doesn't work for me, because it's trying to do, his mum and dad come into it, it's, he's got Sean Connery's old Aston Martin, which just, to me, I just don't understand, what is that, the actual one from the 60s, then how is, because he's not, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is this basic clash of, you know, Fleming was writing the stories, and in the early films he was an active 
serving actively in the Second World War, and it's 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 been a while, and he's, he's still out there. <laughs> yeah, and it's, sometimes people like to say, "Well, obviously it's a code name," but they seem sometimes to be going to some trouble to say, "Well, no, it can't be," because you know th- th- this guy in 1980 something is still mourning his wife who died in 1960 something. Which is, you know, Spyfall, he has the actual Aston Martin that Sean Connery has, mm. so, which suggests he's the same character. I, yeah, anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked. But yes, I absolutely agree. I think you get into trouble trying to make an iconic character dramatic. And I don't think... Well, talking about the film we're talking no, about... No, previous, nobody cares right? about why Doc Savage does what he does beyond the basics his dad told him to. <laughs> exactly. And that's, it's not a bad... I am not a, a huge proponent that every character has to, you know, life is not a, a, a series of character arcs in some way, you know, some things change, a lot of things don't, I don't think every satisfying story has to have every single character have a satisfying character arc, yeah. personally Also, th- thank you, uh, you know, classic superhero comics, sometimes they did have arcs, sometimes they didn't, but a typical reader would be coming in at a random issue and, not, yes. and would have to pick up fairly immediately who is this person and what do they do so, yeah, which it, yeah, uh, I mean the Marvel again. I know you know what the Marvel films do do quite well at making these iconic characters dramatic. I, I think they were the first ones that did well. Okay, they they did start with origin stories, but because yeah. in part they had all the resources to make lots of films in parallel, they could they could go on from that and say, right, we are going to have the big get together story as well, and then we're going to go on from there. We don't have That's... to have an origin story every single time. Or four different origin stories for the same character. <laughs> In the case of some of them. Yes, that's true. But Raiders does not... Uh, so, yes, this, these iconic characters are there. It's kind of to be the rock of the film for you to... For the film to sort of happen around them. Mm. And for you to know what you're getting. And Indy is... I. In a way, it's. It, I mean, he was designed to be that, and he is one of the most perfect. I mean, to the point where, you know, 40 years after the film was released, you know, you show a Federer or a Bullwhip in a teaser trailer, everyone would know what it was. Mm. In fact, you could even probably just say, the man with the hat, and everyone, most people would have a fair idea of which character you're talking about. <laughs> That's a pretty impressive level of um, cultural penetration yeah and and i think some of that is it as you say because it's it's a it's a simple character i I don't mean that there isn't anything more to it but you you can grasp who is this guy and what does he do very quickly exactly and that's that then the rest of the film happens around him so should we should we move on to so indy uh, there's not much more to say about his character Uh, one thing we haven't said is harrison ford is uh, i he is a huge reason as to why in mm. works, he he is uh, a a movie star in every sense of the word. He 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 has immense screen presence and charisma, or he he had. <laughs> I, I think com- uh, compared with Star Wars, he, uh, where he was clearly young and hungry, and this was his first. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously American graffiti, but that that was not yes. a huge thing. Uh, here, he's still young, but he's not quite as hungry. Yes, <laughs> and certainly he. Um, famously grumpy with the press as he is though he certainly seems to like the character more himself mm. uh, not that that matters really whether he does or not but he is a huge reason as to why it works he's, I mean to me I don't know, my childhood heroes were Indiana Jones and, and Kyle Reese from The Terminator and that will always mm. be and that's, I don't know that's could a, do worse well, could do, I mean that, as a young white guy you're spoiled for choice which is uh, one <laughs> yeah. of the problems of course um, but 
uh, it just it worked for me certainly, and I, I and and then of course not only having the actor being a phenomenal actor, you have a director in Spielberg uh, who absolutely understands the power of of wonder and imagination. Mm. I mean, whatever else we have said and will say about Spielberg, he can. He can grab me by the wonders out of the blue completely. Yeah. Just he's he does it in a way that Lovecraft hits me in the terrors. He he can just <laughs> he can just hit that note, even if I'm somewhat disinterested. Happened again with this film when they when they find the ark, when they find the well of souls. Is it well of the souls or well of souls? The well of souls. Yeah. The well of souls. Um, not or, that that ever particularly signifies anything. It's just a not name. that it matters. No, I know. Um, or, or I mean, the where where it hit me here again. Even though I don't know how many times I've seen it, is when he is in the map room. Again, another plot hole. Why is the roof in the door when this was? This was <laughs> why was the door in the roof when the city was not buried under the sand? Presumably, when they built it. Um, in fact, why does the whole thing only work if the city is buried under the sand when they didn't... Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Move on. Um, that moment when he's down there and the light hits it and it's just... He's very good. He's very good at that. Mr. Yeah. Spielberg. Yeah, there, there's a um, an element of this which largely got cut out, well, out, out of the script and then even more out of the filming. Um, but one of Castan's original ideas was... Uh, an actual love triangle uh, with with Belloc with as the Bella. other, yeah, because then you have the contrast of you know the traditional masculine hero who's not too good to do some digging himself, yes, um, with the slightly more effete civilized guy. I mean, that's charming, classic American anti-intellectualism and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can see that with well, the brief scenes. We should move on to the other characters then, but the brief <laughs> scenes we get of of Belloc and Marion together, they're pretty, they're pretty, they're very well acted. They're, mm-hmm. they're not. You would, li- I would like to have seen more of it. The the me now would have liked to see more of it. I don't know. It probably wouldn't have worked back then, though. It probably was. We can't really complain. I mean, it it is a pretty perfect entertainment vehicle. <laughs> um, well, move it. So the love triangle's interesting. Yeah, I think it would have. I think it would have worked. You can see the remnants of it. You can see the yeah. shadows of it, can't you? Yeah. But well, that, that's the fascinating thing when you, when you see see the actual film as released, and you, and here is a bit that of itself is a bit weird and doesn't seem particularly to fit. And it was actually a stub that was going to be the attachment for something completely separate that never got made. I am a little confused. Uh, perhaps we should, but why Marion always has to put a dress on in every scene? She's, I don't know why. I, I know it's sort of explained in the plot. It just seems a bit. Maybe that was part of something. Let's move on to Marion yeah. then. Um, Karen Allen in it wasn't her first film role. I think she'd been in a few things. She'd done a few things. Yeah. Um, uh, she she is on record as saying that. When when she saw the script, there was a lot more to the character, and she felt that what was actually left in the film basically left her almost entirely defined by the relationship with Indy. That is a shame. Yeah, I can't argue with her there, and that is a shame because she gets one of the all-time best introductions. I would mm. say that that drinking scene in the Nepal bar. That's amazing. Like Marion, just she knocks it out of the park. You know what she's about. You know what kind of character she is. She's. But then you don't... Well, exactly as you say, you know, the moment Indy comes up, she's just quite often not that character anymore, and you only see glimpses mm. of it. Um, I mean, I, I do vaguely remember Kate Capshaw in the second film, 
with all the running and the screaming, but there's a certain amount of running and screaming here as well. There um, is. Particularly there is. Um, when they're getting out of the Well of Souls yes. with the skeletons. Yeah, she is uh, entirely dependent on Indy. Um, in fact, she actively sort of mucks things up, doesn't she? For, yeah, from that opening scene where she stands up to uh, Tort. Is it Tort? Yeah, because yeah. it's supposed to sound like um, Tort in uh, German, I guess. Um, the Gestapo guy, when she stands up to him, uh, and she's rescued by Indy, but you feel, in some ways that's fair enough, she's taking on four pretty burly guys and an expert in torture three burly guys and an expert in torture I, I don't feel that is a weakness of Marion's that she needs to be rescued from that mm. um, and certainly Indy gets rescued from similar situations but she never quite shows that oh I hate to say like spunkiness but it, there's a real kind uh, the, the, of... there's a little bit in the aircraft I mean she it, it, it's a little confusing there I've got to say because I mean on the one hand she's got into the cockpit behind the pilot who has been yes. shot uh, she can't open the cockpit latch. On the other hand, she can instantly work out that she can swing down the tunnel to the um, tail tail turret and machine gun stuff, and then then swim then uh, swim up the tunnel again instantly when when it when it's time to get out. So yeah, yeah, I agree. She's uh, yeah, yeah. She that's right. I'd forgotten about the whole flying wing scene. Oh, we we must talk <laughs> the flying. But yeah. Marion, yes, that is a. So she was disappointed, but she agreed to come back in the film, which mm-hmm. I better not mention the name of then. <laughs> Though she doesn't, I mean, she doesn't do much in the fourth film. Well, then no, no other bugger does that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there's a shame. She, she has a, a fantastic introduction. There is the, the slightly awkward by 2021 standards frisson of, um, I was a child, I was in love. Well, you know, Taken just as that, it's fine. You know, yeah, it's, she's just yeah. saying, I was very young, I didn't know what I was doing. It, yeah. It's clear from the story conferences that, yeah, I mean, Lucas in particular was, was saying, oh, yeah, yeah, she was 11, they had this affair. That'd be fine. Oh, and, you got, you, and you got Spielberg saying, maybe a bit older. Yeah, <laughs> I think they probably uh, wisely took that out of this film. Uh, specifically, Lucas saying, you know, Oh, okay, we could let her be 15, but once she's 16 or 17, it's not interesting anymore. And, and I think you were saying earlier that that's just, yeah, he's, he's trying to be edgy. Yes. Rather and than, rather than actually thinking about the implications. Yeah. I, and I think attitude, we talked about this a bit in airplane, but I think attitudes have, uh, probably quite, it didn't have the quite sense of utter horror. Um, uh, well, I'm just going to say the word pedophilia, um, that it does, uh, nowadays. Um, well, I think, I think it was, a thing that people would still say and not not be uh, thrown out of a place for saying, you know, the the idea that oh well, you know, she came on to me and I couldn't help yeah, it and that sort of yeah. thing, but you know, very very much the the male, well, obviously I didn't do anything wrong attitude. Yeah, so. hashtag not all men uh, malarkey. Um, yes, uh, but I agree with you. I don't think any, I, it seems like Lucas was doing it because without that kind of. Uh, background to it he was just trying to be edgy and make it interesting and show that Indy was a a sort of a man of the world um, something like that yeah I mean there, there was obviously the consideration even before they knew who was going to be playing the roles that she was going to be a lot younger than he was simply because of the rules on casting well not official rules but 
Yeah. Well, he was uh, even in this first film. Was he forty by then? I, he was. He was close to forty. I'm pretty sure of. He was certainly late thirties. Um, yeah. You wouldn't have thought he'd still be making them forty years later. Well, he must have been. Thir- <laughs> must have been uh, late thirties. He was born in forty two, so he's coming up on forty. So, yeah. So thirty nine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was. He was um, not much younger than I am right now when he was <laughs> in the, um All right, a bit younger. Not much. <laughs> um, yeah, Mar- yeah. So that's um, yeah, that's an interesting free song that gets kind of edited out. But then, pretty soon after that, they reconcile. Again, there's some nice scenes in Cairo, I think, with Indy and Marion, where they're just finding their feet a bit and finding mm-hmm. how to be friends again and finding what it was they liked about each other. I think that's all really well done. I think it's nice, and it uh, compared to the later indie films. This one feels like it has more moments than that than any of the others. It, it feels mm. like it still has some of this connective tissue that Lawrence Castan is clearly very good at. I mean, he's he's very good in a few lines of dialogue. I'm ascribing all the the lines of dialogue. <laughs> I'm just going, he is credited as a screenwriter, so I think it's fair mm. enough to say yeah. he's very good in a few lines of dialogue in adding. Depth to pretty thin characters, I feel. He did it in Empire. Um, he does it here and adds humour as well. Um, just makes you like characters in a way that um, that perhaps mm. you wouldn't have, have liked quite the same degree before. The, this is not just, you know, your, your action man hero guy. This this is your, uh, somebody who's got some quirks to him. Yeah, exactly. Yes, there was some depth in a way that I never, never felt watching Connery's Bond um, or Roger Moore's Bond. Mm. Um, what what, what yeah. does he do between adventures? Well, I think they put him back in the cupboard and turn him off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he doesn't, you don't get a sense that he has a life. I mean, he is clearly a workaholic. I, I, swear, it's, I, I keep thinking we're coming back to Bond, but there, there is a good reason. This this character was, Indy was kind of created as a as counterpoint to Bond, to, to the point where, I'm sorry to mention it again, but in Last Crusade, they were very excited. They were, they were casting James Bond as his dad, despite mm. there being relatively few years between Sean Connery and Harrison Ford. Well, so, so this is, just in terms of, of the Bond film chronology, this is the same year as For Your Eyes Only. So oh, it's, it, it's It's after the one in which he went to space. To try to cash in on Star Wars, and they would, they would, and they would. About the same time this came out, they were trying to get back to a more, to more gra- plausible, at least. Interestingly, to me, for your eyes only, is the one where Roger Moore is clearly too old to be playing James Bond at that point. As opposed I to mean, doing the next two films, make another two. Was it Octopussy and A View to a Kill? Yeah, yeah. I, I loved A View to a Kill. That is my guilty pleasure. A View to a Kill. I'm flipping <laughs> love it. I love Christopher Walken. Mm. I love Roger Moore. It's got Patrick McNee in. I know it's terrible. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> um. I don't think um, we're going to claim it's a masterpiece. No, I think I think that's going to escape our our remit. Um, how about Belloc then? Yeah, he strikes. I, he fades so perfectly into the background of of the the film that I think it must be a really good job of acting combined with screenwriting. He is right. just note perfect. You, you you're never thinking he. Well, at least I was never thinking he's playing this well. I was just no. thinking, yeah, this is just this is the right guy at the right time. I, th- I think he has a slightly dubious accent, but that's right. <laughs> I think they cast him without checking whether he could do an accent or not. And he had to 
and drive Sorry. up to Spielberg and, and put on a faux Frenchy Belgian kind of accent with everything <laughs> in the film. Um, yeah, he's very good in it. I, I don't know if he quite works as Indy's absolute nemesis. Well, the script doesn't really play that up much, no. except in that, yeah, he is clearly working with the Nazis. Yes. He, he is being their pet archaeologist. Yes. It's, uh... Again, that's another nice scene after Marion has, uh, in quotes, died in the in the bar when... I, I, I mean, it does it does tick the bingo card of, we are not so different, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> but it's for me, that's the first time I had ever seen that expressed. I don't know if it was a cliche by then. I suspect it was. Um, it's certainly a cliche now. Um, it does sharpen some of the classic serials, at least. It's okay. So it is, but it is a nicely done... They're different. They're, I, I think it is nicely played. He's very good, Martin, uh, Martin Freeman. Uh, Paul Freeman, um, <laughs> despite the infamous fly-eating uh, sequence. Uh, <laughs> poor fly. Uh, Martin Freeman. Uh, Paul Freeman um, completely uh, denies that it ever went into his mouth and that they cut the last few frames off. Um, whereas Spielberg's <laughs> claims to have gone through the film Zapruder-style <laughs> frame by frame <laughs> to work out whether the fly went in or not, and it definitely did. Um, but there we are. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting. I'm not sure there's much more to say about Belloc other than he is. He's just a counterpoint to Indy. Yeah, and very nice. If, if, if you if you look at it through the American anti-intellectualism lens, then he's definitely the effete European. Yeah, over-civilized. He's the one that will sit and have a glass of wine while the others are digging. Mm-hmm. Um, very wise, if you ask me. I mean, if you're going to have I will another plot hole alert, if you're going to have a secret dig on someone else's site, maybe don't get you guys to sing while they're doing it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a tip. Um, and the, there's another, I mean, it, it's it's a very sparse primary cast, because that's it, really. Well, we have John Rhys-Davis yeah. as, um, as uh, Sala. Um, I'm again. background character, but yeah. Background amazing for anecdotes about the film, though, well, <laughs> including uh, the fine details of the dysentery they all got during, <laughs> during the, the, the first time I at least saw him in what I think of now as the John Reese Davis role. Yes, because yes. yeah, I mean he's he's done he's done it again many times, and yeah, fair enough, it works, it's fun. He was uh, he's supposed to be so as as written, Salah is supposed to be a very short, thin. Um, uh, wiry man, and, and when Spielberg asked him to do it, John Rhys Davis said, "Are you proposing surgery?" <laughs> <laughs> it's just fantastic anecdote. Again, he's he's a, a, a much like Denham Elliott's character. They're not much more other than brilliantly acted, very endearing characters, but not really much more other than um, Basil expositions of the film. Yeah, though, though the person I really want to mention here is Ronald Lacey. Yeah, blow my mind with Ronald Lacey. I can't go with it. Uh, as uh, Arnold Tott. Yes. Uh, who who is incidentally in the in the original notes as six foot six two hundred ninety pounds and he can punch him in the jaw and just hurt his hand. That was that was <laughs> what they were originally thinking. I don't know when that transition happened, but Lacey really made that role his own. He he was also I think described as he was he was going to have like a mechanical arm with a flamethrower in it or something like that. <laughs> that, was, that went. You could almost see that happening in later indie films, sadly, but here and mm-hmm. that was obviously of Ronald Lacey's fantastic and a very menacing. Just the whole right from the opening when it's him and Marion, he's just terrifying. The moment from the with the the um 
the coat hanger mm. beautifully played. I think that was pinched out of 1941, though, if memory serves. But maybe I'm wrong. But as it was Spielberg's own film and nobody had watched 1941. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's some context there, I think, because... Um... I, I think it would not be an unreasonable supposition to think that, you know, Spielberg has, has basically until this point gone from smaller success to bigger success. And then yeah. 1941 has been a flop. And as and far as he's concerned, film off the back of that. this is the one he did next. I, right. I think, as, and I, th- I suspect as far as he's concerned, he did basically the, the formula as before. And for some reason it didn't work. Yes. Um, I think with this, also, I think with Raiders, he was absolutely determined to do it on time and under budget, which mm. I think he did do with Raiders, suggesting he had something to prove to the studios at that point. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if we want to talk about this now or later, but um, this this is yeah, we, well, the stuff we've been looking at in the George Lucas connection to Apocalypse Now, for example. Yes. Yeah, Lu- Lucas and Spielberg have both up to this point basically been bad boys of New Wave. And this is the yes. point at which they are making an unashamedly and utterly commercial film. Yes, I don't know. More so probably than Star Wars, I think. Star Wars wasn't made to be. I mean, obviously, no. they wanted it to make lots of money. But it, yes. but it, it wasn't um, the same sense of we, we will make absolutely certain that we have this and this appealing thing and that appealing thing. I agree. It wasn't deliberately crafted in the way that Raiders is to, to yeah. be... A perfect film. Um, yes. Uh, we've moved away from um, Ronald Lacey here. Yeah. Who I thought, I, the, the reason you've blown me out of the water with Ronald Lacey, I always thought I was very good at recognising actors' faces. And I knew Ronald Lacey is in Porridge um, in a number of episodes. He's in the like, whatever happens to the likely. He's in a number of other films. I've always spotted him. I thought, oh, that's Tote from Razor Lost Art. Bunch of things I've basically never seen, but yeah. Uh, but he is the baby-eating bishop of Bath and Wells in Blackadder, <laughs> which even after you told me, I flatly refused to believe it. I thought there must be another Ronald Lacey. Went back and watched it. I, I can still barely see it. That has blown my mind that he was... I know he's wearing makeup, but I just... Wow. He, he made an, a very effective career out of having a weird face. <laughs> he did, didn't he? It, bless him. He's... Uh, Oh, I feel well. He was—he's—he's he's phenomenal in it. He's one of the. The it's interesting actually the villains in Raiders, um, because although Belloc's Belloc is the nemesis, he's not quite complete because he has some sympathy with Indy and with and is clearly has some romantic interest in Marion. He's not quite the absolute antagonist mm. that he could be, and. Th- uh, Tote is terrifying, but isn't quite in the authority to. And he doesn't. What I like about Tote is he never takes any of it too seriously until right at the end. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's serious. Um, the, I, I feel well, like one, is... one feels, and this is in the portrayal more than in the script. One, one feels that it's a really good thing that that there's that there's this regime he can work for because otherwise he'd be having to torture people freelance, and that just doesn't exactly. pay. Like, absolutely, yes, he'd be in. Um, M as Peter Lorre's figure. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I I feel in some of there aren't the villains aren't quite uh, strong enough, or no, they they never quite gel because there's also the the 
the captain, the general, who was in it a bit, uh, <laughs> who I can't even remember the name of, despite having seen the film quite a lot. Yeah, and I mean, he does, he, he's certainly not a, not a primary character. He's just a sort of very stereotypical, stereotypical, clearly a Nazi, but not much more than that, really. And so, they, I don't know, those that kind of trio of baddies, the ones who don't do so well when the arc opens... Um, I don't know, they don't quite... I don't know why I'm complaining, because I don't know that the film needs them, but needs more than that, but they they don't quite add up to a... I suppose my suspicion would always be with Indy, oh, he's always got a supervillain baddie, you know, there's always someone at the end who's behind it all, but actually that doesn't hold up to water when I think about the films. And as the films progress, perhaps the villains get stronger and sillier. But hmm. I wonder if they really need that because actually Indy is just fighting against the environment and the world and just having these adventures. And I don't know that he really needs the super strong baddies. Yeah, and, and one one of the um, villains in effect is the entire Nazi organisation, and yeah, the, the the Oberst is the representative of that. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But but he's dangerous not because he can punch you, but because he can get two hundred guys to shoot you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a, he's in charge of the mooks. Um, well, I mean, we, as you say, we delved into the characters, such as they are, and they're all, they're all. I, I mean, one of the strengths of Raiders is they're all very well cast, very mm. well acted. All yeah. feel like to me, they all feel like they have more depth than they actually do. I yeah, they're, they're, they're not Raiders obviously win. shallow. Yes, and that is why Raiders wins where a lot of films fail. I think it just, and I think that's both in the script and the acting that they they do that, um, that they get across, they get away with those hidden depths. But the action sequence, I mean, that's really what Raiders is about, isn't it? We have the the set pieces, we have the the opening set piece, we have the the chase, the mm. ta- the, the the truck chase. Um, I, I think the truck chase is probably the strongest sequence. I mean, it is it is the last what you might call conventional action sequence. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking actually, there's not as many action. I suppose there's a sequence in the middle with the um the the, the Cairo attack, should we say, mm. where they just shoot the truck sequence is uh, one of the all time great chases. I mean, it 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 is very. It's just very well done. It just carries you along. It's it's it's. I I, I even like the little joke at the end where he's been through what he's been shot he's been through what they even acknowledge you know we should probably acknowledge the fact that he's been shot so he just kind of at the end goes Ugh. <laughs> and holds his arm. <laughs> i mean he does it much better than that. no one can take a punch like indy i suppose there's the um right but well this is part of the same action sequence with the uh with the plane as well with pat roach again turning up um he'd already died in the in the film by that point pat roach from <laughs> i know him from alfreda saint pat but he's a very famous wrestler and died i think in every single one of the indie films up until last crusade but he was one of the burly himalayan men mm-hmm. um right at the beginning and he's the unfortunate large chap who uh, needs to be more careful with his propellers um <laughs> but they are good they are well done action sequences um and the ones cut out of the scripts ended up largely in Temple of Doom, I believe. I think there was a minecart sequence originally in in the original. Yeah, script. and it, it may have been intended to come after the arc was opened, with some of the villains surviving. It's not clear how right, that how yeah. that may have been planned in the first place. Does it, oh, we didn't. Does this does this Raiders? It just is over your ninety ninety minute rule, isn't it? I think Raiders. It's like one hour yeah. forty, but it doesn't feel like it. To be fair, 
Yeah, I, I think uh, both both the good side and the bad side are it keeps moving and get, gets on with stuff. Yes, yes. Exactly. Sometimes it doesn't really give you time to appreciate it, but yeah. There's not much more to say about the action sequences other than they're very good. Um, they certainly do what they're supposed to do. Do you have any other particular thoughts? Well, is, is this perhaps a place to talk about anachronism? Yeah, go on then. I think it's time. We, we've been very restrained in, <laughs> in, I, I, in avoiding I, I, plot holes and anachronism, but I think it is worth mentioning the Yeah, the, the, it's, it's a tricky thing, because lo, like many of the other things um, that, that don't entirely work in the film... Um, you don't really notice at the time, and then you think later, hang on a minute, this yeah. is meant to be 1936. Yeah. So, for example, you know, there, there are lots of Browning high powers. Yeah, Browning high powers existed, but the, one, the ones they actually got from presumably a prop warehouse or somewhere are a specific distinctive model that wasn't, didn't actually exist then. It doesn't, right. it doesn't make any difference to the story. No. That, that's the thing. I mean, the Volta P38 doesn't exist. They would have used Lugers. Uh, the MP40s, the, the KR98K, um, hadn't really. Obviously, what somebody said was, "Hey, hey, you intern, go get a load of World War Two guns from the, from the World War Two gun shop." Which they did, but the World War this is yeah, pre yeah. World War Two. Yes, uh, the 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 one that really did strike me was um, the rocket launcher. Right. So there was no was there was there such a thing? Basically, no. Um, okay. The the thing people were using for anti tank weapons at this point was generally a, some sort of large bore rifle, and right, which wouldn't really have the yeah, same it, threats. It, it wouldn't be threatening. It wouldn't be a way of saying I can destroy this entire thing. I can put a hole in your in your thing. Yeah. But yes, that's that is interesting. That does affect the plot, doesn't it? Because the, if he had the only other thing he could have done is add a detonator and have some dynamite strapped to the bottom of the arc. Yeah, or I, 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 I can collapse the entire canyon on top of you or something like that, but yes. then he'd have had to set it up. So, yeah, it, it, that, that, that I would say is Belloc's big scene and you, you, you might, you might barely notice it because you think it's going to be working up to the, a bigger climactic confrontation later. But that, that, well, that it, is where yeah. Belloc effectively wins. Yeah, that's right. That's where he, he, he calls Indy's bluff. I, um, I know you really are an archaeologist under it all. That's very true. That is a good, um, yeah, that is a nice moment actually, because we never really see Belloc again. He's certainly, uh, until the, the moment when the plot is just going to kill him. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, that, the anachronism kind of creeps into the, the plot holes. I mean, there are, I know everyone complained about Indiana Jones 4 for very good reasons, but you know, <laughs> the plot hole about the fridge and he would have turned into jam and all that. Well, there's many plot holes in Raiders that people didn't seem to, you know, how do you stay on top of a diving submarine? Um, that, travels across the Atlantic. That's actually more interesting than it looks, because, I mean, the, the the assumption is that it's a submarine, so it dives, but, you know, as, as we saw in Das Boat, they would actually spend most of the time on the surface. Well, I, I thought that solved it then. Except... except you said they do seem to be diving well, and turning the levers. And a, they again, because we've seen Das Boat, we know that those big wheels on that side of the control room are specifically the, the buoyancy tank controls. Well, this is it. I think bringing up Dasput is very important. Not least because it is literally the same boat. That's the one that they mm -hmm. pinched for this scene. Yeah, um, also but, the same submarine pen at uh, La Rochelle. 
Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, they, they just used La Rochelle. That's right. Um, which is why they were in the area of Wild Ass Boat. Was filming. I think the producers hired out the boat before Wolfgang Peterson knew what was going on. He just found the boat It can't be quite that simple because it has been repainted. It has a different conning tower. It um, has, hasn't it? And that can't be CGI or anything. Um, no. But uh, it's interesting to bring up Das Boat because we both found that really gripping and really tense and very full of drama by going into the really fine details, mm. which is the exact opposite of indie. Um, or even if you I'm, don't get into, don't dig into the details, you can at least see that they're they're basically right. You know they're there, yes. Whereas indie is, um, I, it gives you a different kind of tension as well because you're not you're not quite you're on the edge of your seat in the moment with indie, but you are not like, holy shit, this guy's got to sort these batteries out and he's going to go. It's, it's not quite the same. <laughs> I'm not saying it's worse or better or one is it. It's just a very different kind of feeling. Mm, I mean, I, I, I prefer the the details were got right and th- therefore the story feels more tense and real because, you know, there isn't going to be some magic thing to solve it. Exactly. There is a, 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 after Das Boat, you're not going to be... Um, there's no, there's going to be no fridge logic, you know. You're not going to be like, hang on. I mean, there may be, but but in a way, it would feel more of a betrayal in Das Boat if they did do that. Mm. But... I suppose as I've got older, and this may be an age thing, you do appreciate the Das Boat style of tension more than just being fooled by a film, because after a bit you're just like, oh, you're just pushing my buttons, telling me this is the time, and John Williams is doing his very best to make you feel the emotions that you're supposed to be feeling. He's definitely doing the same thing he did in Jaws. Yeah, great theme, yeah, and really crude filler in between the theme. I noticed, and, yeah. because I know you a bit, I, I noticed the, the theme much more here than I ever have before. Yeah, um, particularly during the truck fight, you know, any time Indy's got the upper hand, there, there, there's a, a snatch of of his theme in there. Yes. And it's, it's I mean, it is a wonderful theme, and I, I, I still have it on my iPod. I don't know why I've even still got an iPod. But it is, uh, <laughs> it, it really is, it's part of the ride, really, in this case. It's not so much intrusive, because it doesn't really intrude in the sense it doesn't fit, it fits too well in a way. It's just like this is just part of the scene. It's part of the part of the apparatus to make you feel this way right yeah, in this moment. Yeah. Um, and it is all everything about the film is designed to push you down this emotional avenue, which I don't mind. It's not trying to make you. Feel well, that's the thing. Me. I mean, if if a film tries to do this stuff and fails, that, that, then then we say this is a badly made film. This is a very well made film. <sighs> I wonder if it's a thing, a question of motivation or something. It's, I'm, I am feeling this way as a result of this film because somebody has decided that in minute 37, the audience is going to feel scared. Yes. It, it's a mechanistic approach that doesn't quite hold with the way I, I like to tell stories myself. One, one thing hard, that does... I don't know if there's anything inherently wrong with it. You, you go to a film knowing that's what is going to be done to you, mm. but, Part of the reason we think that's what a film is going to do to us is because of Spielberg and Lucas and John Williams, because they got they they elevated it to the to a level of mastery. I yeah. would say that had not been done before. All these things had been done before. You know, music cues have been used to make you feel this way. Iconic characters had been around before, like um, Sam Spade, for instance, mm. but not quite so deliberately crafted exactly to it. And I I. 
a bit like I'm a little unsure of how I feel about that, other than vaguely uncomfortable. Well, I'm thinking of the way quite a lot of authors I, I, I know have said at some point something like, I wanted the characters to do this, but they told me they didn't want to. Exactly, yes. And yes. I feel that in this style of filmmaking, there is no room for that. No, exactly. If that's the case, change the character. No, don't change the story. Yes. <laughs> but this is why the plot holes don't matter, because because we're on, on for a ride and we're only there for that ride. You don't worry about plot holes on a roller coaster, and that's pretty much what we're on. Mm. Well, that, that's the other thing. Because a lot of my experience of telling stories is via the media of role-playing games, Yes, um, I know that as a role-player, as a GM running, the, say, I'm running this in an adventure, Yes. I, I cannot say, oh, well, um, you, you, you don't think of doing this, you, you do that thing instead. Um, because that, that would be very much railroading. And there, there are lots of little Your things where... players would not respond to that. Yeah, they, they want to be solving the problems themselves in their own way, not necessarily the way I've thought of. It's a different medium, but it, it, the, the more it gets away from that, the, the more it's tricky to make work. That's in our head. We're all making when we're role playing. We're all making like Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, we're, we're not managing despot levels of hyperrealism. I think sometimes we can. Though. Anyway, that's a slight well, side issue. But yeah, I'll just I say feel... that one of my things is as a GM, I always like to know lots about the setting so that when the players say we're going to combine this thing and that thing that I'd never thought of combining, I know enough about them to say, yeah, okay, they'll work together that way. You know, I, 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 feel, I understand how the hyperspace physics of this universe works when you try to do that to it, that kind of thing. I do feel, however, I don't want to go too much on a role-playing side mm, issue, sure. but you would definitely be using very different role-playing systems if you were running Das Boot, the role-playing game, Das Boot, <laughs> the role-playing, as opposed to Raiders, the role-playing game. And in the Raiders, the role-playing oh, game... Oh, I could do them all in GURPS. <laughs> you could. But, well, it would at least be GURPS action for Raiders, let's put it I would it think so, way. yeah. Um, yes. So, I, I mean, Roger's Aviation Corner. Oh, yes, please. So, that, that, that plenty gets on at the beginning. No, I, I don't mean the little float plane. The um, DC-10 thing? The, 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 the uh, seaplane that's taking him halfway around the world. Did they have that kind of range, Roger? That seemed like a long way across. Well, the it's clearly meant from, from the way it's set up and the, and the route and so on. That's obviously meant to be a Pan Am clipper. Yes, okay. But it's not. It's a short silent. Oh dear. Which pan, that's the thing. It, it's a big flying boat. Yeah. It doesn't look obviously wrong unless you happen to know that a Boeing 314 has, has that secondary wing, that very distinctive, uh, lower half wing that acts as a, as a hydroplane and, and the triple tail and so on. And there's a very simple reason for this. There weren't any Boeing 314s left. There weren't any left. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) And if they actually wanted to show, you know, here's the guy actually getting into it rather than here's a long shot of a model, that was really the option they had. That was what they... But again, I think it goes back to the, as you say, what they wanted was a capital's big flying plane. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they got that looked period appropriate and and didn't worry too much about. How about the flying wing, though? That that wasn't a real plane, was it? No. Something they made up. Uh, There were... uh, Willie Horton... um, did try various designs during the war um, with tailless aircraft and flight flying wing designs they at this date they are a complete pain to control right um, you you have to do have to um, there, there are, you don't get some of the same stability that you do 
uh, with a conventional tail aircraft. Well, I guess there's a reason you want a rudder and a tail and, and things on. Um, also, yeah, so uh, the, um, what was it, the B-35, am I thinking of that right? Uh, the, the big Northrop flying wing uh, right. was proposed um, a, a few years after this. Um, okay. it, it's it's not wildly out after of after thirty six, not after oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and re- really they like... were only effective uh, once you got fly by wire control systems and active stability, which was well after uh, yeah. like in oh, the fifties, yeah. was it? Oh, it's more um, more like the more like the nineties. More like the nineties. Okay, I will shut up. But it did, also didn't look like the best plane to carry a large amount of cargo. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, obviously, it's sized because that's the size it has to be for the scene to work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a t- presumably two crew aircraft. It doesn't have a belly turret. Um, you might have a flight engineer, but there's nowhere obvious for him to sit. And I wasn't sure where they were going to put the arc in it. Then. Yeah. Is, is it meant to be a light bomber, maybe? I guess so. They better be careful they didn't pull the bomb, <laughs> the but, bomb hatch at the wrong But time. where, where are, uh, where are all, all the important people who want to travel with it going to go? Exactly. It seems like the worst idea of a plane to take the, and again, more plot hole. This this buried <laughs> well of souls just happened to back onto the airfield as well. <laughs> they they have, haven't found it. Well, they, they've yet. established the airfield on the sand. And well, the, a, a, a thing you reminded me of, of course, yeah, this is 1936. This is the British Mandate of Egypt. Uh, <laughs> yes, I have been looking because I'm running it out of Egypt. Anyway, it's a British protectorate at this point in time in '36. I don't think the British would have been all that keen to have a, a a Nazi dig. They do say they're three weeks out in every direction in the desert, I suppose, but they have a lot of very open Nazi soldiers working in a British protectorate. For me, I yeah, I mean, at the very least, you'd have had to fly everything in because anything moving by road on that scale would have would have been observed. Yes, but they had a lot of trucks and things too. Mm, so, but again, yeah. these are all. It is. It's not really 1936, is it? It is 1930s <laughs> hand wavy. Um, these are 90. These are Nazis hand wavy. Don't worry too much about who you're shooting, because Indy actually iconic character though is he does kill quite a lot of people considering <laughs> these are people he is not at war with. Um, <laughs> his country is not at war for another. Well. With Germany for another eight years, after mm-hmm. this, isn't it? No, uh, six uh, years. Well, six years. Um, and Germany's not actually at war with anyone at this point. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I'm not sure that's particularly relevant to it. Um, I, well, the, uh, the thing, I, I suppose this is on a, an imperialism front. The reason I find it, because the, we've talked about role-playing games a bit, and and one of the systems where which we play a lot like Raiders would be Call of Cthulhu, but mm-hmm. we get around the imperialistic side of it by because the artifacts that our characters are searching for are from Lovecraftian characters, so these are pre-human civilizations and and ones that are less going to be worried about cultural imperialism because they're going to destroy all life on the planet. As soon as well, also can. if we leave this thing here rather than looting it, somebody's going to use it to end the world. Exactly, <laughs> which is why Cthulhu is a perfect setting for this sort of thing. Um, sorry, that was a side issue. Did you have more to say? Well, I was going to say um, another thing we, we mentioned before, and is um, what is Indy's actual place in in the overall plot? Because he's oh, a yes, he's a lot less critical that. than than in many many films. Well, this so, is a famous fan theory that Indy did could have just stayed at home and the plot would have worked out exactly as it did. I, I think the answer is not exactly. I mean, what what we never find out is how he finds Marion. Yes, 
I mean, he he knows that Ravenwood was in Nepal. He doesn't even know that Ravenwood is dead. So there's got to be a certain amount of start with Nepal and find it down a bit that we don't see. Yeah. Fair enough. With some contacts or friends of friends. But but my feeling is that Tote could probably have done basically the same thing. So, well, it's implied in the film, at least to me, that they follow Indy to Marion. But I agree with you, that is probably them using Indy as a shortcut rather than they would never have found Marion without him. So if that happens, he finds Marion, he probably tortures and kills her, so, you know, that would affect her story a bit. Uh, yes. But but he, he goes away with the full amulet, they dig in the right place, uh, they find the Ark, they put it on the plane. Uh, on the other hand, I, I don't think we get to melt Hitler this way because Belloc specifically says, you know, let's have a look at this, make sure it's... it's- Make sure it's they the right thing before we open this in front of the Führer. So, so they probably they probably all die in Berlin rather than. Um... So the difference Indy makes is he saves Marion's life, and I think that is interesting because a lot of, at least ostensibly, the the two most most uh, iconic plots of Indiana Jones would be this and Last Crusade for me, mm-hmm. and both of those are about. You know, alter, I know it's a bit of a hoary old cliche, but you know, really, what is important is the people around you, not these crazy MacGuffins that you're chasing. Mm-hmm. That's much more explicit in Last Crusade. Oh, I hope your religions and ancient weapons are no substitute for a good blaster <laughs> by your side. I don't know where you got that from, but, but um, it, it brings to me that works for Raiders because it brings it very much into line with Last Crusade, where saving his father is more important than finding the Holy Grail. And mm. The whole journey was really just about getting to know and love his father, and uh, it's it's much less explicit in Raiders, but that that works for me. If if Indy's journey is basically to save Marion and reconcile with her, then that's that's a that's a good film plot. They could have played that up more and. Yeah. Like well, uh, the, originally it was uh, they weren't even going to have that last scene on the steps. No, that's the so. result of. Um, I think it was written in the uh, in the script, but Spielberg and Lucas were like, "Oh, you know, we don't need that." But Marcia Lucas, hmm. the, uh, Lucas's uh, George Lucas's wife at the time, made them go and film it and put it in, and she was absolutely flipping right. Hmm. It works. It works. It's a really, to me, that again, that it lends that that theory waits and is a really good end you know he's not actually lost everything he's got this amazing woman and he's reconciled from his childhood um, mm. and then we have the iconic closing scene of the, the warehouse which is uh, it's very good I just doesn't make a lick of sense but it's a very good closing <laughs> scene regardless of course they have to revisit it in one of the later films well that, they, that was one of the things they, they looked at in the um in the, the general story conference thing, um, uh, wh- one of the aspects that didn't really make it as far as the film was this is not so much the US government as one vaguely senior army guy's pet project. And he, he's right. starting off from a position of, I don't really know much about this, but if the Nazis want it, then I want it. Right, yes. Um, and so that it, it's more reasonable that he can, he can effectively say, okay, I'm convinced we should, we should not be messing about with this. And hide it away. Rather than saying to the government, here's this super weapon that will win you the war in any other war you want to have ever. But never use it. But never Uh, use it. Also, also the the next few presidents are going to have to be Jewish. Don't don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you want to mention briefly the sequels? I I mean... It's years since I've seen... I've seen two and three. Um, Yes, okay. I've not seen the more recent one. 
they have the diminishing return. There's not much to say other than yes. Well, I, I think th- three probably better than two. I uh, for me three. I I think is great. I I think it it gets all the the nuggets out of Raiders that worked, polishes them up, turns them up to eleven. I'm sorry to use the old cliche and uh, <laughs> and and gets them right again. It has Sean Connery in and. Um, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever either. It doesn't have quite so many of the quiet moments and it's a bit less gritty, shall I say, than Raiders. It just feels even less real. It feels hyper real, Last Crusade. But it works for me. Temple of Doom is just problematic now. I loved it at the time. I I went off it, even as a kid, I went off it pretty quickly and, and now I just... Oh, I mean, sure. Actually, it's got a kid character in it called Short Round, which I've also learned was a American term for a what? What was sure I found this out listening to a podcast about the Pacific War, <laughs> but it was for a round that didn't explode. I think um, it was a really unpleasant thing that it, it was. Um, it's something you wouldn't have thought you would name a character after in it. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, I will have to find it later. The, uh, just in in passing, some of the, some of the stuff that didn't make it into the film, uh, there, there was uh, between. Uh, the college and Nepal, there was going to be a sequence in China. Yes, um, where the the gong gets shot off the roof and chased them, which again appears in, um, uh, which appeared in Temple of Doom. Yeah, um, which, which runs runs into the problem that in in 1936 we we have a Japanese invasion of China going on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, that's right. Shanghai is that's, yeah. That might be why they had to set it in 35 in the end. 34. I can't remember when Temple of Doom set. Maybe that is the sole reason that it's a prequel, because in no other way does it matter that he is a, is a prequel. Yeah, and I've got to say, I, do, I don't think it. I don't think the film is inferior for having lost that bit. It, it, it has clearly, as we said, had some quite aggressive cutting from the original yes. um, plans. The original script, and least. I think it yeah. works. Yeah, I. I mean, uh, yeah. So uh, we, the less said about, I don't know, Indy Four, it's half of a good film to me. <laughs> not even that good a film, but anyway, we don't need to. Other than they created this very iconic character, um, is this Ray, the origin of the red line going across the map? I'm pretty sure it's the first time I saw it, at least. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the problem is, if it was in black and white, it wouldn't have been a red line. So, <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling it may have cropped up in a few black and white films before this. Mm. Um, of this style, I, I think it may have been in some of the, some of the 30s serials. But, yes. Yeah. Um, I I think it may have been too. It certainly, but it's perfect for this film, and certainly, I mean, I, well, that brings us on to: is this a masterpiece? And one of our things is: has this influenced other films? I mean, the short answer <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, yeah. I I, I I think this this really is the point where people realise we can make a pure crowd pleaser. We don't need to try to make it clever as well. Yeah. Enough people will come and see it. It sweeps away really the last vestiges of the the you know the American new wave where well yeah he, here here are these new wave guys films. yes but they have they've they, these this movement that started with directors that were were going to be making challenging atonal if I can use the term but unusual films deep and complicated and disturbing and not necessarily narratively satisfying. And two of the students of that movement have ended up out Hollywooding Hollywood in the end and just making this perfect entertainment vehicle, which, yeah, so I, to me, Raiders really is the death knell of, of that. We've had hints and of com- combine that with Star Wars as well. 
exactly between Star Wars and Raiders. Um, it just uh, that was the end of it, really. Um, and I mean, then, this is still until... before the whole Twilight Zone incident. Yes, that's true. We talked about when it finished. Oh, that was, um, but we still, I suppose, after this, it takes the development of in, indie films really and the independent film movement mm. to really start doing that stuff again uh, well as, as, you, as you're saying uh, Spielberg doing doing the whole on time under budget thing yes and that that tells the studios hey you know we can hire a guy and, and um, tell him to come in on time and under budget and sack him if he doesn't and he might still produce something really good i.e. profitable have- <laughs> Well, Spielberg was in after forty one. Spielberg he only took one bad film because he'd done Jaws and Close Encounters. He'd done Jewel, which had done well. Only took one pretty bad film or badly performing film. I think it was the combination of he wasn't the golden boy who can do no wrong anymore, and in his own mind, he could, he yeah. realised he could he, he really could mess up. To so. prove it, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, it's fair to say Raiders was quite influential, very um, widely imitated. Yes, I mean, either directly from films like The Mummy, um, none have got it quite right, or I think it had an influence on later films in the... I mean, you couldn't say the Bond franchise is more influenced by the Bourne films now, which maybe we'll come on to at some point, because I don't really watch those. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, but, Romancing the Stone. Romancing the Stone, forgotten about that, that's a good film. But they're just the direct imitators. I mean, it's been influenced... It's influenced hundreds of films ever since and mm. certainly it's influenced Hollywood exactly as you say is it a masterpiece I mean yeah it is I, to me it is it just does what it, it's it does the thing it sets perfectly. out to do yes but it elevates what, what, what one might hope it, it to had tried to do more but it does what it tries to do well that's the thing and I think that's why from my standpoint of 2021 it is less ultimately I like it less now than I did then Jaws, mm. I like, and I compare it to Jaws because they both sim. They're blockbusters. They shook the system. They both action films at heart. Um, Jaws to me has a bit more. To, there's no equivalent of the Indianapolis scene here. <laughs> there's, there's nothing yeah. like that. There's no deep acting goes on. Um, it doesn't have much to say. And once the 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 artifice, once it's all worn its way down, you you feel or I feel nowadays, just vaguely manipulated but I'm still captured to the point where if I saw that film now if I saw Raiders now with my cynical heart, I would probably feel much as Pauline Kale didn't like Raiders, I don't think I haven't read her review actually but I would probably feel similarly to her in that a bit manipulated or Yeah, well she she, she felt in particular it was, it was too focused on surpassing each previous Bit of action with a, with a new bigger bit of action, yeah. Um, and and she thought that some some of it, um, some of the scenes he he was rushing and not really achieving the best possible take. But that, okay. as you say, he's trying, trying to get the time and budget thing. So yes, um, I don't know. I mean, as far as the bigger take, she hasn't seen nothing yet. I mean, it's only got worse. <laughs> but uh, it, ultimately, to me, yes, it's a masterpiece. Yes, it's great, and I love it. But I love it less than I did. Um, for a number of reasons um, that we've just spent it some time <laughs> but it's very good. We don't yeah. need to do. It. How do you feel about it, Roger? What's what's your final thought? Yeah, um, coming back to it, I mean, there was nothing that surprised me in the rewatch. Nothing I'd significantly forgotten, which, yeah, given how much I've forgotten of other things, is probably quite impressive in itself. Yeah. Um, 
except that that confrontation in the canyon with the rocket launcher, which on previous occasions, you know, yeah, it's it's happening. This time, it seems to me that that's really the dramatic climax of the film, and then we get the action climax afterwards. Yeah, it's very interesting when you put it like that because it really doesn't. If that is true, well, and it it literally is, it doesn't quite feel. It doesn't quite feel like it there, does it? It doesn't feel like it. And that is the moment when Indy loses and his only redemption afterwards is somehow to know to keep your eyes shut when there's an angel of death around. <laughs> I guess he went to Sunday school as well. Yeah, because, you know, divine justice is all about whether you can see it or not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Well, there we are. I think we have delved into the arc deeply. Don't look, don't look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it does stand up well now. Um Yeah. Better but... than the fifth one's gonna yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well there we go. Good job, Spielberg, for making it into our three three films Wall of Fame. Even if we didn't actually love all of them, but yeah, never mind. Ah, oh, you did yours. Yeah. I prefer it to, I mean, on the Spielberg ranking, yours is best. Then Raiders and then Close Encounters. I don't think we, we're not going to do ET. I think ET's too close to Close Encounters for me. Um, it close Encounters, the kid version. Yeah, yeah. But I was a kid when I saw. It. I, I mean, I have trouble dissecting uh, hero indie from looking at it critically. I, I mean, I just wouldn't be able to do that with ET. Mm, fair. I don't think I want. Sad. It's sad. I don't think I want to watch ET in a critical fashion. But there we go. That's enough of that. We don't need to go through 1981 because we've done it already. Mm-hmm. It remains, I think, only to say, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. <laughs> Goodbye, Rosie.